Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And we're back with part three in our series on the psychology concept known as the illusion of control. This is a cognitive illusion, meaning a common type of error in thinking and judgment that has been studied fairly intensively uh, going back to about the 1970s. Uh, So according to most of the illusion of control literature, humans on average have a tendency to believe we have some level of control over outcomes that are completely outside of our influence, such as uh, the outcome of a lottery and other games of chance. And in situations where we do have some control but not total control, we on average believe that we have more control than we do, according to illusion of control theory. Now, if you haven't heard the other two episodes already, you should probably go back and listen to them first. They'll help uh, bring you up to speed uh, for today. But we'll do a brief recap on what we talked about the last couple of times. Uh, First of all, just to illustrate the idea of illusion of control, we talked about ways that you might see people uh, expressing uh, or, or illustrating their illusions of control in everyday life, such as the way we concentrate on a dice throw as if they will, this will like increase our chances of hitting the number we want. Or maybe uh, pressing the door close button on an elevator after somebody else has already pushed it. Questionable whether the first (laughs) press actually does anything. The second one's just ridiculous, you know, but sometimes we just feel that way. We're in a hurry and we feel like this other guy, he couldn't make it happen, couldn't close the doors, but I can. That's right. So, I mean, these two examples alone, uh, along with, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the walk button at crosswalks, I I think we can all relate to these on one level or another. But another one that's been observed in research is um, when driving a car, thinking that you will somehow be able to avoid an auto collision by exerting some vague type of control that other drivers are not capable of. I mean, uh, I often think that other drivers are incapable of a lot. Uh, when I'm observing their driving. But uh, we're, we're talking about very specific things uh, here, or uh, we're getting into that, uh, that, that realm of uh, control that goes above and beyond just being able to drive your car safely and correctly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's true. I feel the same way when driving. And yet at the same time, for everybody else in the world, I am one of the other drivers. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's like I see a lot of not using turn signals, et cetera, out there. Some people seem incapable of that. But uh, the, the, this need not be a tirade about uh, other people's driving. 
Now, in part two of the series, we talked about a bunch of different types of experiments that have found uh, various sorts of evidence for the illusion of control. And we also talked about factors that tend to influence how much illusory control we experience. Uh, just a few examples that came up last time. One is mood. We apparently experience more illusory control on average when we're in a positive mood. Um, the salience of success or what's called success emphasis. So we tend to experience more illusory control when we have a string of early successful outcomes, getting what we want. So maybe if you're, you know, doing a coin flip a bunch of times and the coin flip comes up your way several times in a row, it might start to make you feel like somehow you're making that happen. Mm. Another factor was the need or desire for the outcome. So the more you want an outcome, the more likely you are to overestimate your, your control over it happening. Uh, one example of experiments that showed this was like, if the prize of a lottery is a sandwich, on average, hungry people are more likely to show illusions of control over the lottery than people who just ate, who might have a more realistic idea of their chances. Another interesting one was power. Uh, positions of power or feelings of power are somewhat correlated with illusory control. So maybe having more actual control over real things could also bring about more illusions that you can control things you can't. Uh, and another interesting factor was the intrusion of reality. So the illusion of control is fortunately one of the illusions that has been found to be fairly well neutralized or mitigated by giving somebody a reality check. You like remind them in the moment what the odds on the slot machine actually are. And that seems to somewhat reduce uh, a person's belief that they can somehow get better odds through their behavior. Mm. Now, also in the previous episode, we talked about an interesting paper I found by Gino et al. from 2011, uh, somewhat challenging the illusion of control framework uh, by doing experiments showing that illusions of control can go in both directions. So, for example, uh, there's a task where you're trying to solve puzzles on a computer screen and there's a button you can press that will sometimes work to make the screen easier to read. And maybe the button works 15 percent of the time you press it or maybe it works 85 percent of the time you press it. Uh, in this type of experiment, Gino et al. found that people with little control control thought they had more control than they did, but people with a lot of control thought they had less control than they actually did. And so the authors of this paper argued that maybe this type of finding should cause us to reevaluate the findings of the illusion of control experiments so that we think of them uh, not as evidence of a systematic human tendency to overestimate our level of control, but uh, that that is just one half of a more general tendency to misjudge our level, level of control in both directions. So overestimating your control happens more often for outcomes that we, to begin with, have very little or no control over. Now, I don't know how well the uh, Gino et al. study here challenging the illusion of control framework has held up, but there, from what I can tell, still seems to be a, a pretty robust research consensus uh, about the illusion of control being basically real. And I, I guess we should just keep in mind that it does seem to probably be real, but maybe it's only half the picture. Mm. Now, another thing that comes up in this 2011 paper by Gino et al. is something we haven't really focused on all that much yet. Uh, I guess we've generally acknowledged it. But the idea of um, noting with specifics the ways that false beliefs generated by illusions of control can have real negative consequences, like on our lives and on the world. And the authors here cite studies making these connections. So um, illusions of control, when you think about it, could make you incorrectly imagine that you are influencing other people's behavior. You know, I think we can all remember plenty of scenarios when we got up in our heads imagining that somebody else was doing something or acting in a certain way because of us or in reaction to something we did. But then later you realize like, oh, actually, they were acting that, you know, you find you get more information. You find, oh, they were acting that way because of something else going on in their lives. You know, other people are living whole lives of their own, and we often don't know what's happening in their heads and in their lives. And so we can have a kind of very self-oriented interpretation of other people's behavior, and one form that might take would be, uh, or one reason that might arise is an illusion of control. Yeah, there's often this self-centered uh, nature of uh, modeling out uh, other people's uh, 
uh, intense and mental states. The authors here also note that uh, people who overestimate their level of control over outcomes might, quote, make bad decisions about where to direct their efforts. And that totally makes sense, right? You know, imagine you're, you're trying to get something that you want, and whether you get that outcome is influenced by multiple factors. Maybe one factor is something that's amenable to practice and skill, and the other factor is purely luck. If you think that the luck-based factor is within your control, you could waste time focused on trying to manipulate that when you should have been focused on, you know, practicing the skill-based factor, influencing what you can instead of wasting your efforts trying to influence what you can't. Yeah. They also note research pointing out that illusions of control could cause you to make bad judgments about whether or not to listen to the opinions and input of others. And uh, this just, it, that that totally seems true, but it also makes me think about how if you generalize illusions of control beyond the self, it seems to me that illusions of control could potentially overlap with the just world illusion, you know, the belief that people get what they deserve. And I'm sure we can all think of cases where we've, you know, encountered somebody who is inclined to blame other people who are suffering misfortune for their predicament, even if it's clearly due to factors outside of their control. Just the mentality that you must have done something to deserve this. You know, maybe if you had a positive attitude, this wouldn't have happened to you and so forth. I mean, you can see that even in scenarios where it, it's logically absurd. There's no reason to think that there would be real causal factors of that sort. And so applying that to other people would almost seem like a sort of universalizing or generalizing of the principle of illusions of control. Yeah. And you can imagine in these scenarios where, I mean, there is kind of a self-protective uh, rationale in some of these judgments. So something um, that is, you know, that random outside of someone's control happens, something negative happens to someone you know or someone like you're just aware of. The obvious um, ramification of that is that something out of my control could happen to me, something just like this or similar. And that puts you in that place of not having control over your events. But if there's a reason for it happening to this other person, then perhaps there is a reason for it to not happen to you. Or, you know, it puts something conceivably within the realm of your control if there is this causation you can focus on with this other individual situation. That's a, a version of the thing we were talking about with like driving that, you mm -hmm. know, you believe auto collisions that you somehow would be able to avoid collisions that other people would be less able to avoid because somehow you can exert a type of control over driving outcomes that other people can't. Yeah. Though, to be clear, everyone can use turn signals. I'm just saying, right. consider turn signals. If you haven't used a turn signal today, treat yourself. So I think it's pretty clear that having the false belief that you can control outcomes that you actually can't will have negative impacts on your life and on the lives of others. There are like an infinite number of imaginable scenarios where this type of illusion would be harmful, which raises the question, then why do we still experience it? Like, why haven't we as creatures gotten a lot better at seeing the difference between things we can influence and things we can't? So to examine this question, uh, I want to come back to a chapter in an academic psychology book that I brought up in the last episode. This is a chapter called Illusions of Control, uh, written by a psychologist named, named Suzanne C. Thompson. This is from a book called Cognitive Illusions from Psychology Press 2016, edited by Rudiger F. Pohl. So this book chapter does an overview of illusion of control research, uh, the research that has taken place since the 1970s, comparing different methods of studying the phenomenon and synthesizing the major findings of this subfield. Uh, now, later in this chapter, uh, Thompson does cover some of the main explanations that have been offered in the scientific literature for why illusions of control occur. One explanation uh, she brings up that she d ends up not agreeing with is the explanation given in the original paper by Ellen J. Langer uh, from 1975. Uh, this was the one about wh where Langer essentially said that illusions of control happen because people 
literally confuse chance determined outcomes with skill determined outcomes so we we actually mistakenly believe the slot machine is to some extent a game of skill and like elements of the the skill game cause us to really think that this connects to the finding that skill-based elements like familiarity, involvement, and competition, which we talked about in the other episodes, uh, could actually cause people to, to uh, have more illusions of control. And Thompson brings up some reasons to doubt that Langer's skill-chance confusion explanation is the right one. The main thing she brings up about this theory that uh, resonates with me is she says, you know, this theory doesn't explain some of the secondary factors that change how much illusory control we experience. For example, uh, success emphasis or the level of need or desire for an outcome, etc. That That just doesn't really make sense if this is the reason we have illusions of control. So instead, Thompson and uh, her co-authors in previous research have offered an explanation for illusions of control based on what they call a control heuristic. And so a uh, heuristic just generally means a process that people use to try to quickly solve a problem or make a determination, not perfectly, but efficiently. So instead of like doing a full analysis of a situation where you really deliberately think everything out, you can mentally use a heuristic to come to a solution or make a determination that is fast and good enough. So another way to think about a heuristic is a mental shortcut. We use heuristic reasoning all the time. Basically, anytime we're not slowing down to do deliberate analytical thinking, we're probably using various kinds of heuristics. Yeah, yeah. This has come up on the show a lot because it, it really is quite revealing about like what we are and how we interact with and to what degree we are aware of our world. You know, like there's just not enough uh, like mental capacity and or energy to do a deep analysis all the time. It's also not helpful. You've got to move through the world. You have objectives to get to, and the brain is helping you get there <laughs> without getting lost in all the details. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you might think, well, wouldn't it be better if we tried to, like, do a really deep analysis on everything? But no, it would not. You don't have time to do that. Like, you, that's that's not a way that you could live a life. You have to do most mental determination fast and cheap. Mm hmm. So, in Judgments of Control, uh, Thompson says a control heuristic is, quote, a shortcut that people use to judge the extent of their personal influence. And Thompson and co-authors came up with a model of how this informal heuristic works. And they say it has two factors. There are two things that we, in theory, look at to make this calculation, fast and dirty calculation, about whether we are influencing outcomes or not. And those two ingredients are, number one, your intention to achieve an outcome, and number two, a perceived connection in the world between your actions and the desired outcome. And so in Thompson's own words, quote, when one acts with the intention of obtaining a particular outcome and there is a relationship, temporal, common meaning or predictive between one's action and the outcome, people judge that they had control over the outcome. Uh, so to connect this to a real world example, you know, imagine you are playing a slot machine you have the intention of winning a bunch of money and you play it a bunch and you do have a pretty big win. Maybe it's on the day when you are wearing your lucky underwear. So according to the control heuristic model of Thompson and co-authors here, this would be a situation likely to give rise to illusions of control because both conditions here are met. The intention, you did intend to win the money. Uh, and then the connection, you did take some action that was connected to you getting the money. So it was, uh, in this case, you could say wearing the lucky clothing. But in fact, you don't even really need the lucky charm to establish this relationship. You could have an illusion of control simply for playing the machine. Because in regular play, like, you have the intention to win, and then some intermittent winnings occur. And simply the action of playing the machine could also cause illusions that the gambler has some control over getting that outcome of the intermittent winnings. So they, so they believe they have some way to, to beat the system and win big. So I was thinking about even though this particular connection would be an illusion when it comes to like the slot machine, you don't really control the outcomes. 
the control heuristic, like many heuristics, would still be very useful because it is good enough most of the time. Most of the time, it does help you accurately determine your influence over all kinds of processes every day. So I was just thinking about cooking. You know, you're cooking in the kitchen. Uh, maybe you're making the tomato basil sauce that you've cooked a bunch of times before, and this time it came out tasting better than it usually does. And then you connect that uh, temporally to an action that you took, like I added more garlic than I usually do. And then you use that to correctly determine that your actions, adding the extra garlic, influence the desirable outcome of the food tasting good. Uh, so, you know, it, for situations like that, this kind of heuristic would work just fine. It's not that the heuristic is bad. We use it all the time, and most of the time it's good enough. You can imagine the alternative of, like, being frozen in place, trying to consider, like, what role chance factors outside of your control may also have influenced how much you liked your tomato basil sauce, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That's just, like, not a useful scenario to be in. And, of course, the thing about tomato basil sauce is you will in theory, make it again. So this process of, um, of, of testing and learning and making these judgment calls will continue. That's right. So you could refine your understanding in the future. I mean, maybe if you make it with more garlic again and you don't like it, you, could, you can update your beliefs. But in this situation, a, a heuristic that says, uh, okay, I combine, I intended for an outcome, I took an action and that outcome occurred, that's good enough. Yeah, I can say then, okay, I did have control. My action was what determined the outcome. But of course, there are situations in the world that can turn this normally very well-functioning heuristic against you. Games of chance are one of them. Uh, remember, you know, so you think like, I have the intention of winning the slot machine. I take the action of placing the bets and pulling the lever. Sometimes I do get small intermittent payouts. Therefore, I am at least partially in control. I can beat the odds. But it's not just games of chance. It's also everyday scenarios where the amount of control you have over an outcome that you care about is ambiguous. So I was trying to think of some scenarios like this. Uh, here's a very common one. Trying to persuade people to agree with you about something. A very, very common human activity that occurs in workplaces and friendships and families and sales, you know, at every level of human life, there's persuasion. And so it's happening all the time, and whether you succeed or fail at this task, you never know exactly how much of the outcome was due to factors within your control, like the kind of persuasive case you made, or to other factors outside of your control, like everything else going on in this other person's life and mind. So the level of control that you have is always kind of ambiguous. You, you will have intermittent successes and failures at persuading people of things, but it's easy to see how illusions of control can arise here, and maybe you can start thinking that you have more influence over people than you actually do, because, like, sometimes you're going to win at this game, and you can never really know for sure why you won, if it was because of something you did or because of something else. Yeah, and I mean, the reverse is true as well, like you often hear, um, Oh, it's kind of like the, you know, the old saying, little pictures have big ears, right? I mean, uh, you, you might not think you're having an influence on someone, that someone's looking up to you or looking to you or noticing how you're responding to something, but that influence may be in place. So it kind of goes both ways. Totally, yeah. I mean, in fact, that could be the other side of that Gino et al. study, right? That, and sometimes mm -hmm. we have a lot of influence and we underestimate the amount we have. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. 
Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Uh, but another kind of extremely common human scenario where the feedback is ambiguous uh, would be health outcomes. You know, the, we do this yeah. all the time. It's like I feel some kind of pain or discomfort in my body. I want to feel better. Maybe I do something like I take some kind of medication or I do some kind of ex exercise. And then sometime soon after I do that something, whatever it is, I feel better. Therefore, I'm kind of inclined to conclude that whatever it was I did created the outcome of me feeling better. And maybe it did or maybe it didn't. Like without clear evidence, the kind of clear evidence that we have um, in, from like a randomized controlled trial, it's hard to know whether the intervention is what did it or whether you simply started to feel better anyway due to regression to the mean. But, uh, you know, according to the control heuristic, you would like you would have a hit on whatever that intervention was, and then therefore it would feel like whatever you did was the decisive factor. You were the controlling factor there. Yeah. I mean, and even when you're aware of, of this, you can, you're kind of left sometimes. I mean, I speak from my own experience here in a situation where you're like, well, OK, my doctor said to try taking this supplement and I did. And then I got to feeling better, but I could have easily just, that could have just been at, at the point at which my body was uh, healing back up again. You know, it's like there might not be a connection there, but maybe I just keep taking them because it, you know, like it kind of comes back to, um, you know, the, um, the, 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 the reduced cost of keeping an amulet in your pocket, you know, I yeah. you know it's not inconveniencing me, inconveniencing me to do this. So I guess I'll keep doing it just in case there was some lineup between these two things. Sure. And you, you never know. So if the feedback is ambiguous, maybe it is doing something. And if it's not like super costly or hurting you in mm -hmm. some other way, why not do it? Yeah. And so it can be frustrating that a lot of things in life end up being like this, for sure. So anyway, I, I think this control heuristic model uh, makes a lot of sense. I don't think we can say for sure that this is the best explanation for why we experience evolutions of control, but it seems like a good candidate to me. It seems at least to have a, a pretty to work as a pretty strong working hypothesis. Yeah.
And this brings us to the next question addressed in Thompson's chapter, which uh, connects to something we've we've brought up in uh, both directions now, which is uh, what are the implications of illusions of control in our lives? Like, how do these illusions affect us and do they do they ultimately help us more or hurt us more? Because I think a lot of us hear that word illusion and we think of illusion as unreality. And, you know, maybe we don't like the idea that we're just wandering about in our daily lives confronted by illusions. Um, but, of course, there's a, there's a lot to our perception of, of reality that is illusory, uh, you know, as we've discussed many times on the show before. So just because it is, is an illusion doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, um, but, but also illusions can be uh, disruptive as well. Right. So I just think it's worth looking at ways in which uh, illusions of control can be both bad and good. And spoiler alert, it seems that the evidence is that they are both. They both help us and hurt us. So on the positive side, one thing that Thompson talks about is, um, you know, the idea that human beings are clearly motivated to believe that we have agency over outcomes in our lives. And research has found that in general, Belief in, quote, control and a sense of self-efficacy, the fact that you can you have agency over your life, you can take actions and they do have an effect, that those things are correlated with desirable outcomes like better coping with stress, better performance on tasks and some health related outcomes. Sometimes uh, health has been shown to benefit from these feelings. So it seems that in multiple ways, it is good for us to believe that we have the ability to affect what happens in our lives. And you can see how, of course, in one sense, that would be good because it is actually good to have control over your own life to a certain extent, you know. So, like, it is good to, in reality, be be in control over your fate. But would the belief in self-efficacy itself be beneficial even if it weren't always true? And it seems there is some research indicating the answer to this, at least in some ways, is yes. So... There are some findings that show that a tendency toward illusions of control might help us avoid discouragement when pursuing a goal. So uh, the illusion of control could help inculcate a sense of persistence in goal attainment behavior, especially when facing difficult conditions or setbacks. And also illusory control seems to help in mitigating disappointment leading to negative mood. It possibly is even protective to some degree against depression. So to the extent that it is able to provide um, sort of like mood regulation and help maintain motivation and protect against depression, that seems like that would have very clear benefits on well-being. Yeah. Another thing that's interesting is we talked in the last episode about research finding an association between illusory control and personal power. Uh, but the kind of interesting thing is that that could that causation could go either way or both ways. So it could be that positions of power cause people to have more illusions of control. But it could also be that illusions of control tend to increase the likelihood that somebody ends up in a position of power. So it could literally lead to, you know, you uh, being essentially better able to attain goals or, I don't know, maybe having other people view you more positively and wanting to promote you in some way or empower you in some way. Um, so, I don't know, when you combine all this together, it looks like there's pretty good reason to think that illusions of control help maintain positive emotions and can help a person maintain a, a sort of confidence or action orientation, essentially the, the motivation to keep actively doing things to try to achieve your goals. But it's not all flowers and butterflies. We mentioned earlier that list of negative consequences that have been found uh, to flow from illusions of control. And Thompson mentions a bunch of negative consequences as, as well. I'm, I'm not going to get into all of them here because there's some overlap with what we've already talked about and so forth. Uh, but just briefly, a, a couple of things. One is, remember the study we talked about last time from McKenna from 1993, which found the, the tendency to believe that you would be able to exert more control than other drivers on the road. Uh, subsequent research by Schleyhofer from 2010, Schleyhofer and co-authors from 2010, found that people who show greater illusions of control about driving 
were also more likely to drive while trying to use a cell phone simultaneously in reality. And you can kind of see how that would extend from the belief that you have more control over chance-based outcomes than other people do. But it actually, in this case, leads to a behavior that compromises your control. <laughs> you know, it compromises your driving ability and makes a fatal crash more likely. And there are apparently a lot of examples like this where people who exhibit greater illusions of control, which might not necessarily be a, you know, like a stable feature of a person's uh, personality across their whole life. It could also be situational. But in situations where people show greater illusions of control, it has been linked to taking fewer protective measures against diseases, to uh, like making worse decisions as financial traders, mm -hmm. and to engaging in problem gambling behaviors. Uh, in fact, there was one thing in particular in this part of the chapter Thompson brought up that I thought was an interesting finding. So this was from a paper by Cowley et al. in 2015, and it found that there was a difference in how high illusory control gamblers would review a gambling session after it was over versus people who had low illusory control. So you have gamblers, they go out, they, they gamble a bunch, and then they lose a bunch of money. And then they are asked to reflect back on the gaming session. Apparently, high illusory control gamblers would focus on their highest individual win within the session, whereas low illusory control gamblers would have a more uh, a more total view of the session and note like their the final outcome like what were their winnings or losings at the end of it and so i thought that was really interesting uh like if so if you're in a condition where you're especially prone to illusions of control about gambling apparently the salient piece of information to you about the whole session was like your best hand of the night, your best payout at the slot machine in, in a single moment. And even maybe even though you like lost everything overall, the important thing to remember was that moment when everything was looking really good. <laughs> and it's kind of twisted, right? Because it's, it, in a, to a sense, it's looking on the, the sunny side of life, right? Yeah. It's being an optimist. It's looking back on your experiences and not focusing on the negatives, but focusing on the positives. But, and that's great. I mean, that to a certain extent, that's what you should do, but also yeah. you want to be able to correctly learn from your mistakes and, and do an accurate post-op on things that you've done in life. That's a great point that this is an instinct that in other contexts is a very positive one. Like if you can, you know, if you had, a, you know, you had a, a, a rough day or something, if you can like step back and focus on the best thing that happened all day. Well, you know, that's wonderful. That's like a great thing to be able to do unless that's like guiding you in how you should invest your money in the future or something. Yeah, it's interesting that like the the main case we're talking about here, gambling, especially with you know slot machines and whatnot, but just sort of gambling in general, it's basically it's an artificial scenario that lines up with a lot of real life survival experiences that that are a part of our our, our heritage and a part of our, our our evolutionary development, you know. Um, but you know, there's competition for resources and so forth. The use of skill, or at least the perception of the use of skill in those pursuits. But the world of gambling, the world of games in general, like even if you're not playing for stakes, um, it is an artificial construct that involves a lot of those survival activities. Yes, that's right. And in fact, interesting thing Thompson brings up in this chapter, she highlights how the gambling industry uh, directly exploits known illusion of control triggers to pull you in that like slot machines. It's almost like they were designed by somebody who read a book chapter on the illusion of control and they were doing a checklist like, OK, familiarity, involvement, success, emphasis. They really like quite fiendishly like hit on all of the things that seem to elicit higher illusions of control. Another interesting thing about illusion of control and gambling brought up in this chapter is a uh, neuroimaging study. This was research done by Hudgens Haney et al. in 2013. It was studying real-time brain activity of people who had gambling problems versus non-problem gamblers when playing games that have some level of control, like poker, versus games that are purely chance-based, like roulette. Mm -hmm. And the interesting finding was that, okay, uh, you take people who don't have a history of gambling problems, 
they show a very different level of neural engagement in skill games versus chance games. So you put them in a game of skill, they're going to be very engaged. You put them in a game of chance, and they will they will show less activity in the visual and prefrontal cortex than they did in the skill game. People who have a history of gambling problems did not exhibit this same difference. So for them, in chance games, the visual and prefrontal cortex was fully engaged as it was in skill games, which, you know, it's hard to know exactly how to interpret that. But so at least one possible way of thinking about that is that uh, is that when you have high illusions of control, you are looking at a chance based game as if there's like some way that you can engage to do better at it. Hmm. You're still scanning the table for advantages, but, you know, actually, if it's like roulette, there's nothing you can do. Now, one good thing uh, that Thompson mentions is that there's some evidence that problem gamblers' illusions of control can be mitigated by interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy. uh, And like we talked about last time, at least in some situations, studies have found that illusions of control seem to be well mitigated by a basic reality check. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are a lot of different... um versions of this but yeah like with certain anxieties uh, issues for example there you can uh, be taught to like put your thoughts on trial i've heard it uh, referred to as such you know where you're mm. you're taking something that is just like a, a almost kind of an ambient thought or way of thinking in your mind maybe not even expressed verbally or otherwise but take a moment to collect the thought and then properly analyze it and saying, is this likely? Is this reasonable? And so forth. And yeah, and it you know it can it can work very well with uh, with anxiety to you know w- within you know limits. And then uh, it makes sense that it would work in these contexts as well. You know, like okay, let's let's take this impulse, let's slow it down, and let's actually let's look at it from both sides here. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I I don't know. I, I think this is this is interesting that the illusion of control is something that is fundamentally objectively an illusion an illusion like it does generate misperceptions and false beliefs incorrect judgments but to some degree it does have a positive side it seems illusions of control probably do help improve mood and probably do help us persist in attaining difficult goals maintain you know motivation and and action orientation while we're trying to implement uh making positive changes in our lives and so forth but then again on the negative side it of course false beliefs can lead to all kinds of problems and negative outcomes in the world poor choices about how to invest our time and efforts and in the worst cases can can lead to uh, dangerous and destructive behaviors. So it's a complex phenomenon that affects our lives in um, in both directions. Absolutely. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. 
It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Now, given all that we've discussed regarding the illusion of control, you know, it should come as no surprise that some have linked the concept to magical thinking in general, to belief in the paranormal, um, because, you know, what is the gap between some level of belief and, say, the power of prayer, holy amulets, lucky objects, lucky traditions, and some level of belief in, say, personal psychic ability or other paranormal concepts? You know, I would even argue that there's, there's, there's more than a little bit of crossover between these things. Um, in part based on my own experiences, my own observations of my, of, of how I approach, uh, certain situations. Uh-huh. Take bowling, for example. Uh, oh boy. So bowling, great game, great fun. I maybe play it two or three times per year. I don't know about you, Joe. I have not bowled in quite some time, but I would love to. I, I enjoyed bowling uh, a lot when I was a kid. It was like, one of my, I, I never did it all that much, but I feel like on those rare occasions when it was like, what would you really like to do today? I would, I would request bowling, but of course with the bumpers, please. <laughs> yeah, those bumpers can definitely help. <laughs> now, um, one of the interesting things about bowling is that unlike a lot of, a lot of the examples we've been touching on, bowling is a game of skill. So you initially, your initial role directly sets the speed and trajectory of the ball as it heads towards the pins. Now, where it gets interesting is, of course, a skilled player, uh, I'm assuming, may feel entirely more in control of what happens than me when I bowl, uh, though we've plenty of info to suggest that even they, even an expert, even a professional bowler, may feel like they have less control than they do, and obviously plenty of pro athletes engage in some kind of good luck ritual. Uh, I'd love to hear from sports fans out there if you have some really telling examples of this, but I, I feel like you, you kind of hear about them all the time. Like you'll have people that are like literally performing at the very you know, top of their sport and, and are very competent from a skill and conditioning standpoint. They have all the experience in the world. Uh, you know, nobody can touch them. And yet they will perhaps also engage in some level of superstitious, you know, ritual luck scenario. Yeah, that's interesting. That raises a lot of questions in my mind, but continue and maybe we'll come back. So whether you are a pro bowler or, you know, just a casual bowler like myself uh, that maybe bowls, you know, a few times a year, the scenario is still the same. Once you send that bowl down the lane, once it has left your hand, um, it's all set in motion. And yet, I certainly have time and time again uh, caught myself in that, those moments before it hits, uh, trying to nudge the ball with my mind toward the center pin, you know? Yes. Not, not actually, you know, rationally believing I have that power to do it. Not like turning to everyone and being like, all right, watch this, everybody. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bowl, and then I'm going to use my telekinesis 
to get a stride. No, no. But I'll catch myself doing something either with my hands or with my will, trying to will the the ball towards the pins. Yes, exactly. Um, you know what? Can I say something that I think helps influence that, even though this is a pure misunderstanding? But Rob, if you know what I'm talking about, if you watch pro bowlers, they don't just throw the ball straight. They put some kind of spin on it where it like arcs or hooks. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a number of those techniques. Uh, yeah, my my father-in-law at one point was showing me some of those and trying to teach me how to do the spin. And also, I mean, a, a very skilled bowler can do a lot of impressive things, but it doesn't change the fact that once the ball right. leaves their hand, it is set in motion. There's no more, there, there's no telekinesis involved. That's right. It's all there in the initial throw. So that was their moment of control was when they were throwing it. It's not, you know, they're not using telekinesis afterwards, but it can kind of look like it because it's like hooking in a way. You know, we're used to like the amateur is used to throwing the ball just straight. But when you put the kind of spin on it that makes it curve like that, it it encourages the idea that somehow the bowler is continuing to exert control after it has left their hand. Really, right. it sometimes, was all in the throw. Right, yeah. Sometimes there's a flourish or something. And and, and I guess to less experienced bowlers, too, uh, like myself, is like sometimes there is a real disconnect between what you think you're about to do and what the ball actually does. Yeah. And that can go either way. You can feel like in the moment you are in a bowling movie and then you get a gutter ball or you can feel like you kind of fumbled it and oh you got a surprise strike out of it so uh, these sorts of things are possible so again i don't actually believe i can min- mentally manipulate bowling balls from a distance but in the heat of the moment there is that feeling that i don't know it's not even a feeling that i should try to do it i just catch myself doing it mm-hmm. and and i feel like this is also interconnected with the you know the consciously ambiguous notion of intent, aim, and execution. Hmm. So anyway, this connection isn't just something that I've been thinking about. It's also referenced in the the sources I was looking at. Um, I was looking at a a couple of different papers. Both of them involve social psychologist Daniel M. uh, Wegner, um, who lived 1948-2013. I believe he's come up on the show before. So he mentions this connection between magical thinking and the illusion of control in 2008's Self is Magic. And then there's also a paper I was looking at on which he was a co-author, Everyday Magical Powers, The Role of Apparent Mental Causation in the Overestimation of Personal Influence. The lead author on that was psychologist Emily Pronin. Um, This was from 2006. Uh, Both of these reference Thompson, by the way. Now, in the Pronin paper, the authors argue that magical thinking may serve a motivational purpose, especially in times of stress and uncertainty. And they point to several different documented cases of this, from a rise in magical thinking among Germans in the interwar period and police officers working in high-risk environments. Uh, they also point out um, uh, some, some uh, health-related scenarios that I believe that this is directly from Thompson's research. And then they, uh, they write, quote, even when people recognize the control over life events may be impossible to achieve, magical beliefs are, may arise out of a motivation to find meaning in that which they cannot control. Hmm. So they go on to point out that, quote, basic cognitive errors involving the perception of, of uh, causal relationships when only non-causal associations are present, uh, along with the, a need to control things in uncontrollable situations, can lead to these kinds of acts and beliefs. Uh, and indeed, they stress that, that these sorts of acts may occur even when we rationally deny the connection. Um, and, you know, this touches on sort of like the, the, the dual nature of uh, human cognition and belief that we've touched on many times before. I mean, you can you can have superstitious ideas while also having uh, rational ideas in your head. You know, we can we can balance these things and switch back and forth between them. Uh, we're not necessarily completely chained to one uh, extreme or the other. Right. And it, another way of thinking about it is like we we don't always act on what we know or we, right. we don't always act as if we know what we know. Right. One uh, example that uh, they discuss in this paper is, okay, thinking ill of someone and then something bad happens to that person you were thinking ill of. They point out that this may well um, cause feelings of guilt uh, in you, despite the fact that mere feelings cannot hurt someone. Your, Your thoughts of ill will are not going to actually harm someone without without some other things happening in between you know that yeah. uh, pure thought is not going to do it uh, 
But uh, in, in one of these situations, you may feel that guilt. And they stress that what the, quote, generating consistent thoughts related to an event just prior to its occurrence may be sufficient to induce feelings of authorship for the event. So uh, they carried out a series of experiments uh, that they discussed in this paper involving subjects being told about a peer's physical ailments on the and on the flip side, being told about a peer's athletic success. And they also did a third and a fourth experiment involving real athletic competitions. And uh, the, they summarized by saying, quote, in each study, the relevant outcome occurred regardless of participants' thoughts. It was experimentally predetermined in our first two studies, and it was part of a live sporting event in our second two studies. However, in each study, participants were more likely to feel and believe that they were responsible for the relevant outcome if they had generated prior thoughts related to it. You know, this is interesting because this would almost connect to Thompson's control heuristic model, except it would cut out the need for an external action. It would be kind of the control heuristic model if the only action you really needed was to think about something. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they don't get into this at all, but, uh, you know, I can't help but think of, you know, various um, uh, religious worldviews that uh, some of us may have come up in where there's a lot of emphasis on thought and about, like, thoughts having, you know, thoughts, for instance, uh, themselves being sinful and so forth, mm -hmm. you know, and therefore having like this, this reality that goes beyond mere, um, you know, some sort of you know, mental internalness. Um, but uh, at any rate, that would have to be something that is explored in another paper, another discussion. Mm -hmm. Now, in uh, Wegner's Self is Magic, his words remind me once more of the bowling example we were just, we were ta just talking about. Again, there's a disconnect between my muscle memory, my actions, and my perceptions of the ball rolling toward and hopefully hitting the pins. Uh, and it's not just me, and it's not just bowling. Uh, this exact situation applies to a great deal of the human condition. He points out that our brain only presents us with quote, a relatively impoverished account of its own operations, and our attempt to make sense of the evidence yields the impression that we are freely willing our actions. Ah, uh, yeah, well, this is a fantastic point because, I mean, it not only, you know, can you um, not understand the difference of why, you know, one time you, you throw a bowling ball and it, it was a strike and another time you threw it and it was a gutter ball, it's not like... You know, it can be frustrating that you don't know what made the difference in those two attempts, but it can also like you can take a step further back and try to examine your authorship of all the actions you take, not just like throwing a bowling ball, but every single thing you do throughout the day. And it becomes increasingly unclear what the difference was that made you do anything versus anything else. Yeah, yeah. He points out there's a certain amount of inference when it comes to connecting our thoughts to our actions in general. And magical thinking, he stresses, occurs when people, quote, draw causal inferences relating their thought to their action. So the perception of one's own causality is subject to error. Uh, and he uses a great example here in, in his writing, uh, that of turning on a light in your house. Okay. okay. Uh, we, simple thing. We do it all the time. And uh, the, the thing is, though, we may do it with varying degrees of apparent willfulness. So if you think to yourself, well, it's dark in here, I should, nay, will turn on the light, and then you do it, well, this act may feel quite willful. Right, but sometimes it's not that conscious or not that intentional, is it? That's right. He says sometimes you might think to yourself, man, a cookie sure would be nice right now. So what do you do? You walk into the dark kitchen and absentmindedly turn on the light on the way to the cookie jar. And in this case, the act of turning on the light may, quote, feel less willed and more, more like some sort of alien control. Ah, so the, the connection between intention and efficacy or cause in the world can be mysterious in multiple ways. Like, if I don't remember willing myself to turn on the light right before I do it, it can seem like some kind of unconscious magic force might have taken over and replaced my conscious will. But at the same time, going back to the previous study you talked about, if I do remember consciously willing something to happen and then it happens without me taking any apparent action to cause it, I can start to wonder again if there's some mysterious connecting principle at work. Uh, also, regarding mysterious unconscious actions we take, I wanted to mention that 
as you were talking, Rob, I just realized that I've been fiddling with the coiled cable that connects my headphones to my microphone, like wrapping it around my thumb. I was previously not conscious of doing this. I have no idea why I was doing it. Don't know. Yeah. And there, there are so many examples of this in our life. And some of them we catch, sometimes some we don't, you know. Uh, and it's just a peek into some of the ways that an individual might develop a view that they can exert psychic, magical, or some other form of paranormal control over reality. Um, you know, there are other possibilities, other factors involved in this as well. This is not like a, you know, a, the, the one uh, recipe for this uh, line of um, thinking. Uh, but and then likewise, going back to what we were talking about earlier about people in power and so forth, uh, we might factor it into cases where individuals put faith in another person's supposed powers, magical, psychic, etc. Or even you could cut all the way that away and get back to just the idea that like, oh, this person's influential. This person can get things done. Um, you know, if, if they believe it and, you know, tying in their char charisma, their, you know, their seeming authenticity, we might be more likely to buy into that, might buy into the fact that they're a great leader, might buy into the fact that they can move things with their minds and so forth. Uh, so it's 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 fascinating to to to, to take all of this, uh, you know, to take the illusion of control and apply it to this uh, to some of these scenarios and think about how it could be a contributing factor to some of these scenarios, again, where one one believes that they have some sort of a power or feeding into this um, this individual that other people believe have a power. Yeah, yeah. And and it's really interesting, this connection uh, to the the idea that really analyzing or interrogating the concept of willful control over things makes it more and more mysterious. Yeah. <laughs> makes it seem like maybe magic could be involved. Yeah. And, and again, there are other factors to be sure. Kind of going back to the, the example of like sin and thought. If there is a worldview that one is or, a, or a, you know, some sort of script or programming that one is uh, privy to that encourages an idea of, say, miracles or psychic powers, you know, be it something that is religious in nature or 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 even, you know, non-religious and more, say, based in, uh, you know, conspiracy thinking and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that also could could play a role, among other things. There are, you know, there are a whole host of things influencing um, our, our worldview and the way we interact with reality. Yeah. I have really enjoyed exploring illusion of control with you, Rob. This uh, this has been an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's always fascinating. Sometimes a little haunting when when we start uh, teasing uh, apart these uh, these subjects that involve uh, our, our our outlook on reality and so forth, and especially illusions. Uh, you know, because you know, sometimes it's pointed out that you know we are also an illusion. Our sense of self is an illusion. So, uh, you know. It, it, uh, it can feel a little, uh, a little challenging at times to, uh, to start pulling the threads, but, uh, but also rewarding in the end, too. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to go ahead and close out here, but we'd love to hear from everybody. If you have thoughts on the illusion of control, some of the specific examples we touched on here, even something as simple as <laughs> your favorite example of a professional athlete who has some sort of a ritual that they engage in, um, you know, despite the fact that, you know, their, their skill and their conditioning and so forth is is beyond reproach. Um, uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'll throw out that email address here in a minute. Uh, but before we do, let's see what else uh, do we need to mention here. I remind everyone, as usual, that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Lister Mail on Mondays, short form episode on Wednesdays, and a Weird House Cinema on Fridays. Uh, that's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird movie. Uh, let's see. Also, we'll point out that uh, other ways you can get in touch with the show and or other listeners of the show. There's a Discord group. Uh, you can email us and we'll send you that Discord link. Uh, if you're on Facebook, there is a Facebook group. It's called the Stuff to Blow Your Mind Discussion Module. Seek it out and you can request access and you just have to answer a, a very easy trivia question to gain access. Uh, so if you want to interact with other listeners, that's a great place to go. Uh, and uh, in general, yeah, we, we thank uh, everyone out there for listening to the show. And if you have uh, uh, time and the power to do so, give us some stars. Give us a nice review somewhere. That also helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.